Now, our text this morning is found in Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 43, verse 25. We, of course, will be looking at the surrounding portions of the text as well, but our verse is verse 25 of Isaiah 43, which you will find on page 604 in your pew Bible. Let us pray before reading. Our gracious God and Father, we do live in a day in which people all around us do not know what to believe, and yet you have given to us your word without error, which is our only infallible rule of faith and of practice. It is through this word that you show us our need of a Savior and that you show us who Christ is, who alone can save from sin. And we pray that you will build your people in faith and grow us in grace, and that if there is anyone at all here that does not know the Lord Jesus, that he or she may be able to walk out this day saying, The Lord has found me, and by grace I have found him, and I know now that I am saved from my sins. We ask and pray these things in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25 This is the word of God. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Can you think of a text that is more thrilling than this from Isaiah's prophecy that tells sinners that he forgives sins? Isaiah was an 8th century B.C. prophet. That means he prophesied over 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, before he came into this world to save sinners. And Isaiah's prophecy is so rich and wonderful that sometimes when you read it, you think that he was a contemporary of Jesus. Who can read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah without thinking he was there, seeing it, and through the prophetic eye, indeed, he was, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the prophecy of Isaiah is called the gospel of Isaiah because it is so rich and and full of Jesus and the promise of the forgiveness of sins through Christ. And when we come to this text this morning, I'm sure you can see why he was not only a prophet, but can also be viewed as an evangelist because he held high the evangel, the good news about salvation from sin through what Jesus would do when he came. Now, as we look at this text this morning, Isaiah 43, 25, the first thing we want to do is to ask the question, to whom does the Lord speak? To whom does the Lord speak in this verse when he speaks of blotting out and remembering not the sins of his people? Well, ancient Judah, you say, and you would be right. That is the immediate context. But it's not limited to the Old Testament people of God, but it extends to the people of God even now. In verses 5 through 7 of chapter 43, God says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And so the prophet anticipates the day, bursting out of his context into the day in which you and I now live, in which God would draw from north, south, east, and west his people. This is not simply a return from captivity, 
This speaks of the day in which we live in which the Holy Spirit is at work drawing his people to himself after Jesus went to the cross, rose from the dead, and descended to heaven. And so it's not only true that he addresses ancient Judah here, but he addresses you and he addresses me. To those whose Savior is the Lord. And so there's the immediate context, but the application is right down to this moment with us sitting here today in our pews. So I may preach from this text for a verdict right now, right here, because it's not only God's word then and there, it's God's word to you and me here and now. Second thing we want to see is that he addresses people who are deserving of judgment. In verse 21, he speaks of the people as he would like to see them, that they might declare my praise. But in verses 22 through 24, he tells of what he actually found among his professing people. What did he find? First of all, he found a people that did not call upon him. Verse 22 says, Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. They were prayerless. They did not seek him. Their hearts were far from him. Do we have prayerless people here today? Do we have a prayerless person because you are a Christless person? because you don't know the God of the universe, because you've never trusted in Christ as Savior. You know, when the Apostle Paul was first converted, the first evidence of his regeneration was, Behold, he prays. The Holy Spirit works in the heart and brings to us a desire to know our God, to fellowship with him, to commune with him, because that communion is restored. Do we have a prayerless person here because a Christless person? That is what the prophet found. But also the Lord says that he found a people who were weary of him. In verse 22, the second part, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. They are weary of God. Can you imagine that? They have no use for the God who is there, for his word, for his gospel, for his church. Maybe there's some young person here this morning. Most of our young people certainly know the Lord and follow him and are truly excited about the truth of the gospel, but perhaps there's one who can say, I can hardly wait to be away from my home and away from this influence every day and away from the church that preaches Christ every week. I can't wait to be, I'm just weary of hearing it. Maybe there's someone else who attributes all of your blessings to yourself. You're weary of hearing that God does it all, that it's all of grace. You want to assert your own works and your own merit. These people were weary of God, but not only did they not call upon his name and were weary of God, but God also says that he was burdened with their sins. For he says at the last part of verse 24, you have wearied me with your iniquities. Can you imagine anything more dreadful than for God to say, I'm weary with your iniquities and with your sins, and yet that is what God finds among his professing people, his religious people, people who profess faith in him, but they really did not know him. Now, if God enumerated our sin, he would speak the same today. The human heart has not changed. We are depraved. We are sinful. We are rebellious. We are self-centered. Not one sin that we have committed has escaped his notice. We also, by nature, are a people in and of ourselves deserving of his judgment. Now, I want to put the same thing in another way. So this is the third point. The Lord promises pardon to those who in no way deserve it. In this wonderful verse where he says, I'm the God who blots out transgressions and does not remember sins, having said what he has just said about his professing people, you can see immediately, can you not, that they do not deserve the salvation, the forgiveness, 
that he promises. That's what makes it so wondrous. He does not pardon iniquities of people who are already clean. He does not pardon the iniquity of people who are qualified by goodness. He pardons the iniquity of people who are truly iniquitous, who are weary of God, have wearied him with their iniquities, and who have not called upon him, and that is a marvel. The scriptures teach that by nature we are fallen in Adam, that sin holds sway over the whole person, our mind, affections, will, and conscience, that our hearts are evil from birth, that's the Christian doctrine of original sin, and that we cannot renew ourselves. But if we are pardoned, we must be sinners, and we must know our need of a Savior. If I'm so far from God, how can I know that I'm a Savior? That's need a Savior. That's the point of verse 26. When God says, put me in remembrance, let us argue together, set forth your case that you may be proved right. That's the language of the courtroom. And what Jehovah is saying is, all right, you think you're good, you think you're presentable, you think that you can save yourself by what you do, you think that your religion is going to make you acceptable, bring it on, bring on the evidence, come into the courtroom, present it. And when we come into the courtroom and we stand before this holy God of whom we sang in our opening hymn, what do we find? We find that everything we thought we had, we do not have. That every supposed righteousness of our own is but a filthy rag. We have no merit. We have no goodness. We have no righteousness. We have nothing that we can present to God that would make us savable or bring us into a savable state. You need to see yourself. I need to see myself as in need of a Savior because I stand condemned in His holy courtroom. You know, there's an old proverb that says, the mill of God grinds late, but grinds to powder. The judgment of God, in other words, is sure. And everyone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ says from the heart, I deserve to be ground to powder. I deserve his infinite displeasure. That's what Jacob confessed this morning, that he was without hope save in the sovereign mercy of God. Isn't that a marvel, a wondrous thing, that a sinner can actually recognize his sin because of the work of the Holy Spirit? A true sense of sin is given by the Holy Spirit, and it's a blessed thing. One of the old hymn writers has a line, a sinner is a sacred thing, the Holy Ghost has made him so. When the Spirit of God opens a heart to his grace, he shows us our need, because he only washes the unclean. And if you don't know that you are guilty... May it be shown to you even now as the word of God is proclaimed. Modern thought tells us that God does not punish sin. But the man who understands that he needs a Savior knows better that he justly deserves God's infinite displeasure. Now the Lord must vindicate his justice. God is a just and a holy God. In other words... I will either pay for my sins forever in hell because I have sinned against an infinitely holy God, or I will trust in Jesus Christ who pays for the sins of sinners and meets the demands of God's just and holy law. It's one or the other. Christ bore the sins of his people on the cross that his justice might be done and the penalty paid in their place. And therefore the wonder of the cross is that he cannot punish me for that which was laid on the Son of God, my substitute, when my sin was placed upon him and he died for me. His justice was completely satisfied. Now that brings us to the heart and meat of the text. The fourth thing that we want to see, God describes forgiveness as blotting out sin. Look again at verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. 
Now, you know that the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. There's a word here, mocheh, that is used. And often it's used in contexts of judgment in the Old Testament. For example, blotting out the memory of Amalek would use this very word that is used here. Sin blots and stains the character, but God says, I can blot out that blot. I can remove that stain. And when he uses the word transgressions, that he blots out transgressions, do you know that that word means willful rebellion? It's a marvel, a gracious, wondrous thing that God actually pardons those who willfully have rebelled against him. Now there's a possible allusion here to a debt book. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, we read about the day of judgment and it says this, And I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And what is being presented to us in that passage is the thought that every sin is written down for the day of judgment for those who are outside of Jesus Christ. But in the New Testament, the the Bible calls Jesus a surety, and a surety is one who bears the legal obligations of another person. Think of this. God knows all things, every sin, every transgression of every heart, but Jesus bore the legal obligations of his people when he went to the cross. Suppose I owe a debt, and it's a debt that's so great that I could never pay that debt. And another person comes along and he says, I'll pay that debt for you. Blot his name out of the ledger and lay that debt to my account. Now that's what the sinless, spotless Son of God did for us sinners who were so deep in our debt that we could never have paid it. Blot out the one, reckon it to the other. Christ came and paid the debt of his people's sins, just as the man reading his ledger passes over the blotted name. So God blots out the sinner's transgression. But my debt is so great, you might say. Yes, but God's greater is greater than your sin. My debt is so great, but God's mercy is greater than your debt. Someone this week gave me a quote from Charles Spurgeon, handed it to me on the way out the door. Spurgeon said, Having a divine person for an offering, it is not consistent to conceive of limited value Bound and measure are terms inapplicable to the divine sacrifice. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying that since Jesus is God who became man and went to a cross, his sacrifice is infinitely valuable, can cover all of your sin and all of your stain, can remove every, every demand of the law of God. And to speak of bound or to speak of measure simply can't be applied to what Jesus did on the cross because he's God who sacrificed himself in his humanity on the tree. That's what we read in our scripture reading this morning from the book of Colossians. These wonderful words, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to his cross. This IOU, Christ took it and he nailed that IOU to the cross. And he paid the penalty of the sinner's debt. Blot out his crime, Jesus says. The debt book is closed. 
Blot out the scarlet stain with a deeper scarlet of my own blood. An actual pardon then, an actual pardon is granted to sinners that he saves now. So that when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, every sin that you have ever committed, do commit or will commit is freely pardoned in Jesus' blood. That's what makes this good news. Now, the fifth thing I want to point out from this text is that God describes forgiveness of sins as forgetfulness. Look again at verse 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Ah, says some trembling believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, my sin debt is infinite. My sin debt is infinite. Do you feel that within your soul, within your heart? My sin debt is so great, so deep, so infinite, it must be unpardonable. God, my sin debt is so infinite. God looks at you, believer, and he says, to what debt do you refer? (laughs) Oh, you know, my sin debt, my sin debt. No, to what debt are you referring? I don't know a debt. Don't you see that debt was paid? I've forgiven that debt. I forget that debt. Why does God not remember the debt? Let me tell you why. Because our sins were laid on Christ. That's the first reason why in this very book, Isaiah, in the 53rd chapter, in verse 6, we read, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. My sin was placed on Christ. Paul says, he made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin, that is to say in the sight of God on the cross, to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And so he will never impute sin to me that was imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. In that Old Testament book, Zechariah, we're given a wonderful picture of this. Joshua the high priest is standing in the presence of a holy God and he's filthy from head to toe. He's being accused by Satan because he really is filthy in the presence of God. God says, take off the filthy garments and put on clean garments. And from head to toe, Joshua the high priest of his people is completely cleansed. That's what Christ does for every sinner that trusts in him. He takes off the filthy garment. He places on us the righteous robe of Christ so that when he sees you, he no longer sees your sin. He doesn't see your guilt. It's been dealt with. It's been paid in the blood of Christ. So the first reason he doesn't remember is because my sins were laid on Christ. And the other reason is because Christ's righteousness is reckoned to me, the believer. And that means, believer, that whatever God is doing in your life right now that takes you through hardship, let me assure you, He's not showing wrath and He is not condemning you. He is teaching you, He is forming you, He is loving you in the midst of the hardship. But if you're a believer in Christ, all of the wrath of God was spent on Jesus. It has already been poured out. There is therefore now no condemnation to those in Jesus And there is not one thimbleful of wrath that remains for a believer in Jesus Christ. Not one drop, because Jesus Christ took it all. Well, what does the Lord remember, if not my sins? Oh, this is the glorious answer. 
What he does remember in the place of your sins is the merit of his son, the righteousness of his son, the groans and agonies of his son on a cross. He remembers his son who went to a cross and there the wrath of God was poured out upon him in the place of sinners like us. He doesn't remember your sins. He remembers his own son having paid the debt. And so God describes forgiveness of sins as a blotting out. And God describes the forgiveness of sins as forgetfulness. I don't remember them against you. But now let's look at another thing, the sixth point, which is the Lord's motive for forgiving sinners. Look at verse 25 again. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. For my own sake, that goes right to the highest motive. Remarkable, since sin is an attack on God But he says, for my own sake, I will not remember your sins and I blot them out. What does that mean? It means, first of all, that there is nothing in the creature that would move God to pardon us. Nothing in us that would draw out his love. We were sinners. We were rebels. We deserved his condemnation. We deserved his wrath. He didn't save us because we were good. There was nothing within us that would draw out his love. He loves his people because he loves his people. It flows from his own nature. And that means, secondly, that God's motive is in himself. That God aims at his own glory. That's the kind of God the Bible teaches. It's not the kind of God that you hear in most places, but it's what the Bible teaches. God is concerned with his own glory. In Ephesians, the first chapter, as he speaks of the salvation that he has given to his people, he says to us in Ephesians 1.6, it was all to the praise of his glorious grace. When it says here, he who blots, you know that's a participle in the Hebrew Bible, he who blots. What that says to us is that the blotting out of sin is something that stems from within himself, from within his own nature, from within his own character. This is the high and lofty view of the God of the Bible. And it means, when he tells us that he forgives for his own sake, it means that God's motive and not your work is the issue here. Not even your faith and repentance contributes anything meritorious because even that is God's gift. Now let's derive some inferences from this wonderful truth. The first inference is this. If God blots out transgressions, if he forgives sins for his glory, for his sake, then give up any thought of contributing any work of your own for your salvation. Nothing that you bring. Learn to sing with Augustus Toplady the words, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. If it is for his sake, then you and I contribute nothing to our salvation. Secondly, if it is for his sake then he will save his people that he intends to save. His plan is eternal. Christ died for his people. The Holy Spirit will call them irresistibly and without fail. And perhaps the Holy Spirit is at work even now, 
to draw and call a people for himself as the word of God is preached. But also, if it is for his sake that he pardons our sins, then clearly those for whom Christ died that have been drawn irresistibly by the Holy Spirit will persevere to the end, will be eternally saved, are safe in the arms of Jesus forever. If God forgives, who will condemn? There will be no double jeopardy. If Christ died for my sins and paid the price, then if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can know that you will never be held to account for the sin that was placed on Christ in your place. Well, you say, Pastor, indeed, this is a wondrous truth. I think, indeed, our hearts must be cold as stone if we can hear that this holy God pardons through the blood of Christ. Our hearts must, indeed, be hard as granite if we can hear these things and not be moved to put our trust in Him. Well, someone says, this is a marvelous text, but it's there in the Old Testament. Does it really have anything to do with me? Well, let me show you something. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God speaks of the day when Christ will come, and He says, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. He says the same thing there that He says in Isaiah. When we come to the New Testament, we come to the book of Hebrews, and there we read God saying to his New Testament people, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. If we move over in the same book of Hebrews, we read again, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. You see, God underscores it. He promises it. There it is, right on the pages of the Old and of the New Testaments. He says to you, if you trust in my son and you believe in him for your salvation, I really mean what I say. My character is behind it. I will remember your sins no more. That's his promise. And so he sees believers in Christ as if we had never fallen in Adam better. He sees us not only as if we had never fallen in Adam, he sees us dressed in the perfect righteous robe of Jesus Christ. And so I say to you, my fellow sinner, God's word calls you and me to trust in Christ. Cast aside your work, cast aside your effort, cast aside every thought that there is anything that you could do to bring yourself into some savable state or any contribution that you could make. Cast it aside and believe in Christ Trust in Him alone for your salvation, because it is all for His glory. And let me say this. And you know, parents, with your children in the CDC, this is what we're teaching them. This is what we're teaching our children in the church. This is what Christian parents are teaching their children in our homes. We are teaching them this. We are teaching them that it's all about the glory of God and that your life will be hopelessly frustrated until you come to understand that life is for his glory and it is not for mine. So you have this God. Don't you love the way the passage begins? I, I am he. He wants you to remember who he is. He wants you to remember his character. 
He wants you to recall that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, that behind this promise is the very character and all of the rich and wondrous attributes of Almighty God. I, I am he. I will not remember your sins. I, who created the universe, am speaking to you. I who clothed Adam and Eve after they sinned and pointed them to their need of a blood atonement to the cross to the Savior. I who called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. I who led my people out of Egyptian bondage. I who sent my son into the world that he might die for sinners. I, I am he and I promise you if you trust in my son... I will blot out your transgressions and I will remember your sins no more. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And that also means that there is no sinner that he cannot save. And there is no sin so deep and so great that he cannot pardon it through Jesus blood. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Let us pray. Oh, gracious God, may this word of promise come, come home to every hearer this morning to those of us who have trusted Christ since our childhood, to those of us who have trusted Christ in adulthood, to those who are here who have never yet trusted in Christ, may each of us hear the promise way down deep through the power of the Holy Spirit in our souls that for your own sake you are at work gathering a people from north, south, east, and west, and you promise them that you will blot out our transgressions, and will remember our sins no more. And God's people said, Amen.